This is Your Morning Basket, where we help you bring truth, goodness, and beauty to your homeschool day. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 45 of the Your Morning Basket podcast. I'm Pam Barnhill, your host, and I'm so happy that you're joining me here today as we kick off a new season of the podcast. We're really excited to have author S.D. Smith of Green Ember fame with us today on the show. We're going to be talking about the importance of story, what makes a good story, and how stories work to form and shape us throughout our entire lives. So we'll get on with that interview right after this word from our sponsor. This episode of the Your Morning Basket podcast is brought to you by Maestro Classics. Would you like to bring classical music into your children's lives? You can add classical music to your morning time today with Maestro Classics. These award-winning CDs and MP3s feature storytellers Yadu and Jim Weiss accompanied by the world-famous London Philharmonic Orchestra. Choose from a dozen titles, including Peter and the Wolf, The Nutcracker, and one of the Barnhill family favorites, The Story of Swan Lake. What makes Maestro Classic CDs so special is that each CD and MP3 contains a 24-page activity book, with illustrations, puzzles, games, and fun facts for kids. You can download free curriculum guides that combine classical music with science, math, geography, and other subjects. All CD and MP3 sets include tracks, which explain to your children how the music was made, who the composer was, the history and story behind the music, the instruments used by the orchestra, and most importantly, how to open your ears and really listen. Listening is a learned art, and Maestro Classics guarantees that these recordings will explain and develop listening skills in your children. Visit maestroclassics.com for free shipping on all CDs and MP3s. They start at just $9.98. As a Your Morning Basket listener, you can receive 17% off your order by using coupon code PAM at checkout. Go to www.maestroclassics.com. That's maestro, spelled M-A-E-S-T-R-O, classics.com, where the best classical music curriculum awaits your homeschool. And now, on with the podcast. S.D. Smith lives with his wife, Gina, and their four children in his native West Virginia. He is the author of fan favorites, The Green Ember, and its sequel, Ember Falls, as well as The Black Star of Kingston and a brand new adventure, The Last Archer, A Green Ember Story. He is also a co-founder of Story Warren, which strives to help parents foster holy imagination in the children they love. Sam's stories plant seeds of truth, beauty, and goodness in the hearts of readers young and old. And he joins us on the podcast to chat about how the stories we read in morning time can mold and shape our families. Sam, welcome to the program. Thank you, Pam. It is wonderful to be here with you today. I started to say this morning, but it's not, we're talking about morning time, but it's not necessarily, it could be any nondescript time right now. That's right. It could be any nondescript time, and it just happens to be the afternoon. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Well, we're so excited to have you. We love the Green Ember and those stories, and so it's a lot of fun to get to chat with you about stories. And I know that I've listened to you. I've had the great honor to sit and listen to you tell stories before, and you're a fabulous storyteller. But let's think back to some of your earliest memories of stories. How have they shaped your life? Stories did help shape me pretty early on, I think. But it's funny, it's, it's sort of in a non-traditional way. Like I think a lot of homeschooling families, and my family certainly like this, like the kids are just all into stories and they're reading all the time. And some slower than others, you know, we've had a couple of kids that were just like insanely fast and speaking big words at super young ages and, you know, blowing away the people at grocery stores who were worried about their socialization with their massive words. But we've had others that have been kind of slow to read. But my kid, my family's definitely right now very shaped by, by stories and storytelling and reading independent and collectively. But for me, when I grew up, I'm 40 years old. And when I grew up, in a very small rural area of Appalachia. I guess it's pretty pretty much all rural, but this was especially rural. And I uh, lived in a holler. We called it a holler. Not even a, we weren't even 
you know, sophisticated enough to say hollow. We called it a holler. <laughs> and uh, my dad said we lived so far back in the woods that no one lived behind us. That was actually a cool spark to my imagination because early on I was like, is that possible? How does no one live behind us? I thought, that's amazing. And I just wanted to go back and see if there was anybody back there. But I never did see anyone else, so it could be true. But so I didn't read as a, as a young young boy. I didn't see a lot of males, a lot of boys I was in school with, or peers that were really uh, readers. And so I, that was something that that a lot of girls did. But I so I, but I always had this sort of I don't know if it was a love hate, but I had this complicated relationship with storytelling. My mom would so I, I never had sort of like a lot of desire to go read myself when I was really little. But my mom would read to us. She read the Chronicles of Narnia. And I know it's cliche, but I don't care. It's amazing, amazing stuff. And I love it today as much as I did then as a little boy sitting in the basement of a half-built log cabin that my father never finished building before we went to the mission field and uh, listening to these stories of Aslan and Lucy and and the rest of the Pevensey kids. And so those stories just really shaped my imagination and for me. And we, one thing that was really great about the, where we lived was we lived, we did live back in a holler, a hollow between mountains, a lot of mountains in West Virginia. We are the, the mountain state. And uh, we just, we had a lot of hills and woods and caves and that kind of stuff. So I played all the time. So I had this sort of scope for my imagination it was really, really powerful. And, and the stories that I did get, we just, we would live them out playing in the hills, uh, you know, around our home. And so I was really, really shaped by the Chronicles of Narnia and the Boxcar Children and Lassie. And then even, you know, t- things that we see visually like Star Wars and Star Trek and that kind of thing also had a sort of a big impact on me really early on. It was very, very powerful for me, very, you know, maybe as powerful or more powerful than, than any other influence were the, were the stories that I heard as a child. Well, you mentioned the mission field. When you guys were, I know you spent some time with your family in Africa. When you guys were there, what were you? Did you experience any storytelling over there? Because I know that those cultures over there have a long tradition of uh, a long oral tradition of not so much writing down stories, but passing stories orally. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I sort of there are so many. It's different, you know. In America, we feel really divided. Maybe in particular, particularly now, we feel like, oh my goodness, we're such a divided people, and and we are. I think in, in some maybe in some important area. Uh, ways. But the cultural, there's an amazing cultural unity in, in the United States in a lot of ways compared to, say, South Africa has 11 official languages, the country I lived in, and there are far, far, far more in use, probably hundreds. And so there's, there are Zulu, there are Kosa, there's Sutu, you know, there are Ndivele, there are English, there's Afrikaans, so there are all kinds of tribes. There's two European tribes, the English and the Afrikaners, which are kind of Dutch and so it's just a very diverse culture, and uh, they call themselves the Rainbow Nation, and that's a so they've got so many so many cultures that have in, incredible storytelling traditions, all of them. But I was particularly taken with, and where I lived was really close to the Zulu, where mostly Zulu folks lived, and so I would we helped my father help plant a, a Zulu church with a with another Zulu pastor, and so we you know I was out there all the time in the Matadani Township. And so that, so that, 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 those stories, the Zulu people really got in my heart for sure. No question. And if you've ever read a book, you can kind of understand some of the musicality, the, some of the beauty of the Zulu people and their story. If you read a book called uh, Cry the Beloved Country. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Have you ever, I don't know if you've read that. Pamela. I haven't, but I've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. You would love it. I'm sure it's, it's a, it's a very, it's a beautiful book. And uh, so, yeah, that, that's, that definitely had a shaping influence. Not not so much on me, again, reading a lot of stories myself, but in, I feel like there's, I don't know, I, f- I sort of fell in love. I didn't really know what love was, so to speak, but I love the Zulu people and I love the African sky. And somehow mixing that experience of being in Africa with inheritance of growing up in Appalachia in West Virginia, you know, both of which were really, really strong influences. The, the, the sort of the melding of those two things probably made. It probably explains why I'm so weird. I think that's probably a good good reason. (laughs) Well, let's talk about becoming a parent and how parenthood has changed the way that you think about and experience stories. So, you know, when you were a kid, you heard these wonderful stories and you played them out in your life. So how has it changed now that you've become a parent? I don't know if you've had this experience too, but it feels to me like it's just that I'm beginning to see what was always there 
about the power of storytelling that I didn't realize. I think even more so than becoming an author and writing stories myself, with the the storytelling, the power of the storytelling moments I have with my kids. And that's really where the whole sort of career, if you will, has come from. It's from telling stories to my kids and then those being shared more broadly. But it started at home. And I just, I guess I just see the power more because, you know, it's like a, as a parent, you know, you're looking at your kids and you see something that's, that's not great, like a, an attitude or a habit. And it's very convicting, partly because of, you know, your role in shepherding and loving them. But also, you know, you see yourself and you see, <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, that's, you know, that is so annoying, that habit. And it's just like me. And so you, and I guess you just sort of can see in a new way because you've got this 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 new role of being responsible of, of of having this stewardship. And I just believe very firmly that my family is the per is is the first province of my stewardship in the world, and that if I fail there, then that's more catastrophic than failing anywhere else. And I I I, mm. I, I want to fail there last or not at all, if possible. Because I just I want to be a good dad and I want to be a good husband and I want to do well at home and, and not to say perfect or anything like that. We're far from that. But I just I feel the so what it feels like is it feels like was, we were always in a war, and, but I didn't know it. And now I know it. And it feels like stories, good stories, stories that shape the imagination, that, that spark desire for goodness and for heroic virtue. Like now I just see them as this big, big artillery cache, you know, that I've, we've found all these weapons and, and oh my goodness, it's, we've got stuff we can fight this war in. And I don't mean to reduce it to sort of just battle language, but that's just kind of a, a serious metaphor, I guess. And that's how I feel about, about being a parent, about being a father is that, that this is a more intense than anything else in my life as far as what I feel called to and what I, what I want to succeed at. So, that, so stories just feel like I'm good stories and good storytellers. When I read the Chronicles of Narnia to my kids, when I read, um, you know, other, other stories uh, from, from Tolkien or from Chesterton or from, you know, from, from modern authors like, like Jonathan Rogers or others, Sally Lloyd-Jones, I just, I think of, wow, we've got, that's just more artillery coming in for the fight. So as a parent, I just feel like it's, it feels more precious to me, even just divorced from sort of my own vocation or calling as a storyteller, it just, I just see it as so valuable and, uh, and, and crucial, like that, that there's, there are a few other things that I feel shape my kids' imaginations and who they want to be like storytelling. And then I can just, I guess I can just see it now. I just feel like I can see it. And so I want to, I want to rally the troops however I can. Yeah, you're so right. Just the idea that we when we have nothing else, and you know, Cindy Rollins often talks about reading stories with your kids and then getting out of the way, not preaching, not mm-hmm. becoming the preacher because they're going to, you know, tune you out. You're going to become like Charlie Brown's teacher or the wah, wah, wah. But mm-hmm. if you're reading these good stories and you're just leaving them there, then those imaginations, those moral imaginations are going to kick in and pick up the pieces. And if you're constantly blanketing them with these really good, fantastic, well-written stories. You know, we're not talking about moralistic drivel or anything, but really great tales. Then that's going to seep into who they are as people and shape them. 100%. I totally agree with that. And Tolkien talked about, even from a, for a storyteller, he, he talked about that. He, didn't, he talks about the origins of stories and he talked about them that the stories bubble up from the leaf mold of your mind and that, that all the things that you've read and, and all the things you've done and all the places you've been i talked about sort of that unusual combination of being an appalachian and an african sort of having a heritage of both of those things in a sense and what kind of that, that's just produced something in me i can't really describe it i mean i don't know what it, i don't know what that's exactly produced it's just something that's bubbled up and so yeah, I feel like it's just a, a huge advantage to be able to bring great storytelling to bear on the, the, the imagination, the vulnerable, um, impressionable imagination of a child or an adult. But, but, you know, I'm not responsible for the adults around here. I'm responsible for these, these kids. Right. Well, let's, let's start breaking it down a little bit and talk about compelling stories. What do you think are some ingredients for these kinds of stories that we're talking about? What do they need? I think that's a cool question for you to ask somebody else because I don't know the answer. 
Um, <laughs> now, I, I think that's that's a that's a good question. So I have you know you you mentioned Cindy Rollins talking about Cindy Rollins talking about sort of overanalyzing and the dangers of that. And I I'm like totally of two minds on both of these things. I think it's I totally agree that like that we are hungry for mystery and for beauty and for goodness that transcends like simple reductions of teaching that kind of a thing. But on the other hand, like I also think teaching is awesome. And like if you, if you've ever met a kid, like they love things explained to them, and they ask like why did that happen? And it's that's totally awesome to me. Like I love that. I'm, I'm totally encouraged encourage that with my kids. In fact, they've got this trick that they pull like when it getting close to bedtime, they just start asking me questions about like Napoleon or the film industry or Liverpool soccer or your kids you know, too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they do that. So it's awesome. And I'm like, I just can't make these kids go to bed because we are talking about really cool stuff here. But, but so I think curiosity is awesome. And I think like answering questions is really good. So I think we can overdo it on the, you know, we're all poetry reading people with berets who don't live in the real world and just want to float away. And I think we, you know, we, we're practical and I know you're a home educator. Like you're, that's, you're very practical. You know, you, there's things we, we just want to learn and kids are curious. And that's awesome. So I think just evaluating stories is hard in that, that it can be, you know, I think too much, at least for me, it's, I can't, I've got to be careful about looking back and being too like clinical about thinking what elements of these stories work. So, so I just say that to qualify as a really long and boring qualification <laughs> for why I don't feel entirely satisfied answering a question like what ingredients are great. But I will, but I'll, but I'll go ahead and say that I think there are some things that I think are that are great. But I do think there's something in that sort of that leaf mold, that porridge that that is just goes beyond. I don't know what makes what combinations make the recipe amazing. But I can tell you some things, some flavors that I like. For me, I mean, there are some there are some formulaic things about storytelling that kind of everybody knows, which is, but, you know, it's surprising how often you don't see these in stories. But I think really big things are, you know, raising the stakes. And that's something everyone, everyone talks about. But there is something often that little kids, when they're writing a story, which, I, you know, it's not a big deal to, to discourage, you know, so we don't want to discourage kids, but especially little kids. But early feedback is, well, this guy, this happened, you know, this guy went into the onion patch and he found something and then he went over here and it's, they're kind of rambling and they're not connected. And so something that's really helpful is to say, well, what are the stakes? Like, what does the main character, what does the main character fear losing? What, how much pain are they in? How much are they, how, what, what, what are they threatened with? What are people they love threatened with? What are the stakes? What's and so early in a book or a story, you, you often have you know you have the contract with the reader, and it's not you don't write in the beginning like, hey, I'm going to fix things at the end. Let me tell you what's going to happen. But there is an unspoken, an unwritten kind of contract, and and that starts with what's wrong with the world. So at the sword toward the beginning of the book to get people's interest and to tell a good story, you have to let them know about the stakes and what's at stake and what can be lost and what's wrong with the world. And I think for it to be a satisfying story, you have to answer the question that you posed. You have to follow through on the contract that you have with the reader or the listener of the story. You have to tell them, you have to deliver on what you said you were going to do at the beginning, even though you didn't say it. So I think raising the stakes, having something like being very clear on that contract on what's wrong with the world is really, really important. And then I think causal connections. This is another big one. There's a bunch, but, and I'll just relate this story of how when I first wrote The Green Ember, the beginning, you might be able to see this from my long rambling answers, but I had sort of a more of a rambling, long beginning. And Zach Franzen, who I'm pretty sure you've met, Pam, mm-hmm. a yeah. wonderful guy. He's yes. the illustrator for my books. Just a really bright, brilliant man with fantastic hair. One of his critiques early on was, feels a little bit like, he said, maybe you could tighten up the causal connections. Like, like it feels a lot of times at the beginning of the story, like you're writing this happened and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. He said it would be better if it was this happened because that happened and mm. then this happened because that happened and then that happened because that happened. So this causal, this because thread running through the whole story, that feels like the difference between um, an, uh, an expert or an adept storyteller versus someone who's just kind of finding their way in a story. Um, and it doesn't mean it has to be really programmed, but just always thinking like that readers always kind of need a reason to keep 
reading and, and not that you're treating them, you know, not that you're doing things to, you know, trying to exploit them. I actually don't like thrillers. I don't like books that make you, that are like manipulative. You know, they're not, they never give you anything, but they ask a lot of you, ask a lot of your attention, but don't always give you a lot in like the heart. And uh, I, but I do want to try to tell stories with a quick pace and paces that end things where you want to, you know, end a chapter where you want to keep reading the next chapter and sort of like propelling you, propelling the reader forward. Those are two things, Pam. I can, I can, I could probably go on, but I don't know. Are you asleep yet? Are you asleep? No, I'm not asleep at all. I'm actually thinking about, you know, that was one of the things when we read The Green Ember was you just played havoc with our bedtimes around here. Because... <laughs> I hear this a lot. I'm, <laughs> uh, yeah, this is bad. <laughs> we would get to the end of the chapter and they would, no, no, we have to find out what happens next. You have to read one more. And I would, darn that, Sam Smith. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I love that idea of having the contract with the reader and fulfilling kind of that obligation to them and, and, but also leading them through the story and giving them a reason to continue reading. That's great. So a lot of times moms wonder, what story should I, what book should I read with my kids? What should I pick up? How does the Smith family decide? And obviously, I think you have ends with a number of people and kind of... <laughs> nowhere to go with reading. But if you're just standing in the bookstore, what makes S.D. Smith pick up a book and take it home to read to his kids? Hmm. Well, I think that is great. And I think you probably get this too, that no, I don't feel like I have a lot of particular advantage, you know, over advantages over a lot of other people. I feel like I'm in kind of in the same boat. You know, we're a homeschooling family that's busy and tired and happy. And, you know, we go through difficulty. And so I do... I, so we're, anyway, I just say that we're, we're the same way. We're standing in the bookstore and we're the library and our kids are reading 8,000 books a day. And we're like, what can we do next? You know, where can we go? And, and, you know, you can only read the classics so many times, Uh, but I'm probably like you and, and like a lot of your listeners, I go to people I trust and, uh, that, and we even started a website, storywarren.com that is sort of centered around that idea of like being a resource to families who are kind of concerned. The way I have talked about it is that it feels like there are two dangers that I want to be aware of and a little bit wary of. And I don't want to be like a big fearful, you know, reactive homeschooling. I'm scared of everything. And so I'm going to, you know, we're going to withdraw and huddle up in the basement. And, but also, you know, I want to protect my kids, but I want it to be a shade, you know, a shade like under a tree in a scorching, on a scorching day where there's openness and there's life and there's air and there's opportunity to thrive. Um, I want my protection to be like that. But, but the two things that worry me a little bit in the, um, or that I want to be wary of, or at least aware of, and I find some concern for is that I think on the one hand, you have like a sort of a toxic, I don't know, as a Christian, you know, as a, as a devout Christian family, like we, you know, there are things that we don't, we're not, we're not excited about our kids being exposed to that we, we feel like are dangerous and exploitive and at the very least inhospitable to the kids and don't treat them as valuable and don't treat them as made in the image of God. And so there's some sort of toxic stuff that's like marketed to kids that, that is just astonishing to me. And I think, ah, we don't want that. That's not, that's not, that's not great. It's not hospitable to kids. It's not welcoming. And then, so there's sort of that side, which I think a lot of Christians are tuned into like being aware of that. But there's also sort of, like you talked about it earlier, I think this sort of moralistic, reductionist, didactic drivel, or just sort of utilitarian, you know, the, the people who are just using a storytelling merely as a vehicle to convey truth. And like, that's nothing against truth because boy, I love truth. Truth is so powerful and so wonderful and such an anchor. But, you know, I think that truth, beauty, and goodness need to be sort of used in measure in in, in storytelling and and not when it's just truth and beauty is just sort of like a thin veneer Mm -hmm. to cover over that you're, that really you just want to tell, you just want to give a proposition, which again, I love propositions. I love propositional truth that uh, God is powerful, is true, I think, and God is loving, is true, and I, and I want my kids to believe that. But when I tell them the story of Jesus, you know, healing Jairus's daughter who's dead, then, then then you get the whole thing. You don't have to, you don't even have to say he's powerful or that he's loving. He, you just see it in the story and you get it all. So I think some propositional just re- reduction, you know, to to just propositional truths can be can rob the truth of its sort of power and its reality. So I think they're on the so on the one hand side you might say the right there there could be a problem with that sort of reductionistic like 
And I've, I've described it as being safe for the whole family in a dangerous way. And yeah. Then, uh, and in a and boring other, way. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Right. Not engaging. And, uh, so in between that gulf, which may or may not be real, but just for simplistic terms, you know, in between that gulf, I think a lot of parents are like, I don't really want to go either way. And sometimes you go from one to the other thinking, oh, this is just all this safe, boring stuff. It's just so I'll just go over here to the edge and just take a swim in the septic tank and it'll be great. But that's not that's not really the answer. And, you know, and reacting from, oh, my goodness, you know, my kids are going to be exposed to this to just like I'm just going to do this really simple moralistic stuff that has no heart and no life. That's also dangerous. So I just feel like in between there, there's this, there's a tension there for us as a family. And, and I think so. So go, that's why we started. Part of the reason we started Story Warren was to be an ally to parents who are in that situation like us who are just saying, like, well, I don't know what to do here. And how can we help? And of course, other allies like Sarah McKenzie, you know, she's fantastic for as a resource, the Read Aloud Revival and Story Warren and you and so we listen to all you guys and, and try to try to pay attention. We can't keep up with all the reading. So you know, I'm actually interested to hear what you say about this. But but uh, we do our best. We read a lot ourselves, a whole lot. Together, and we sort of stretch the permissive side of the equation as children become older and demonstrate some responsibility in that kind of stuff. So but, but that we feel a lot of good kind of pressure to be very intentional about walking beside them along with them and helping shape them and along the path of wisdom when they're younger so that when they get a little bit older that we can feel good about them you know becoming sort of like having these trial runs at being adults so that's our sort of our methodology is we but but I don't know if there's a I don't know if that's very particularly helpful <laughs> Well you know I think you touched upon it in this conversation, it, the community is our biggest asset as parents, mm. the community that we have together. And, you know, so often you have to kind of poo-poo Facebook or take a break from Facebook just to keep your sanity. There's so mm. much kind yeah. of, you know, garbage there. But also, mm. you know, as a homeschool mom, there's so much of my community there. Mm. And it's a great place for me to go and say, you know, along with places like Story Warren and Read Aloud Revival, but to go and say, what can we read? Have you read this book? You know, what do you think about this one? What do you think about this author? You know, I have a boy who's 10 and he really likes knights and castles. What should he be reading? Or, you know, and so it's such a huge resource. And I think it's our greatest asset, each other and like-minded people. We really help each other out in that. So that's a lot of times that's where I go. And that's what I do when I'm looking, you know, looking for something. That's so powerful. That's so powerful. I love that you said that. Because that's that's been my experience, too, about a lot of this kind of stuff. The adventure of being a storyteller, even, is that finding allies is such a gift. And one of the, yeah, the positive sides of this sort of what can be the cesspool of, of social media and connectedness is that, hey, we're connected. We've got these wonderful connections to wonderful, beautiful, truthful, good allies that can stand by our side. That's Thanks for saying that. That's that's fantastic. I've enjoyed interviewing you very much. <laughs> You're nuts. My next my next question for you <laughs> is No, how, my my next question for you is let's talk a little bit about story and ritual. I mean, so often in our families, whether we're doing it morning time or we're doing it bedtime, we're pairing stories with ritual. Do you see a connection between the two? No. Let's move on. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I totally do. I think that's a I think you're so right to say that. And yes, I think that's powerful. So powerful. I mean, the green ember itself, that, that's, what it, that's where it came from. It came from a habit, ritual, a relationship, and at bedtimes, at sort of taking a walk times, that's where those stories came from. So I'm a 100% believer in that. And, you know, you and I come from a little bit different backgrounds, but Sort of, I come from a very, 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 well, I don't know, maybe we don't, but um, I come from a very, very low church, sort of like people who are a little bit afraid of ritual, afraid of the word, because thinking that it always has the idea of being very empty or um, just like, you know, possibly false religion or that kind of thing. But just almost the whole experience of my uh, adulthood and growing up has been like trying to re-understand that as, and seeing the unbelievable power of ritual and, and really the, just recognizing that we that's what we are 
we're those kinds of creatures. We're we're ritual creatures. We're we're habitual creatures, and we do the same things. And and so you know, making those things count and making them imbuing them with power, receiving them from our, the inheritance of our from you know the various places we can receive it from, uh, not least maybe our faith. Uh, having so even like Advent right now, the the practice of Advent for our family has been a gateway to so much light for us. So much. I mean, we we started that we didn't even know what it meant. Like, what is this? Such a weird thing. And it's been so many years now. Our kids have grown up with this ritual that we do every night. You know, with this can- with the candles, and we've kind of written some songs, and we do the certain readings, and my, and my daughter will read from a certain book, and we'll we we sing and we read, and it's just it is unbelievably powerful and it's something that i would have thought like well kids won't like that because it's all you know ritual but the kids love it they absolutely love it it's they look forward to it their eyes light up with the candles and the stories and the songs and the beauty and the quiet and the longing you know it's funny it's funny because well first of all i'm going to ask you have you read any of james k.a smith desiring the kingdom and his talk about rituals that form us Yes, yes. Okay, because I was yeah. going to recommend that if you hadn't. <laughs> no, for sure. That's been huge, yeah. But, you know, kids are such creatures of habit. And so you mm-hmm. were saying, oh, I didn't think the kids would like that. But they, I mean, I, there's nothing more OCD than a toddler. I mean, you know, they love, <laughs> they love ritual. They really, really do. Yeah. And sometimes I think when Jesus talks about uh, you have to become like the little child, maybe that. Something that I'm not going to get off into theology because I always get that wrong, but that might be something that he's alluding to there is that it does, the ritual does, I think, really grow the faith. Doesn't Chesterton say that too? He says, like, children say, do it again, do yeah. it again. And children don't mind that. There's the wonder of repetition. Total, totally agree with that. What, what do you think it did for your kids to hear those stories over and over again? Maybe that's where oh, I'm going. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely profoundly powerful. Maybe nothing else as powerful. The, formative power of those rituals, which are deeply connected to storytelling, particularly us seeing ourselves as characters in this everlasting story that's more beautiful, more good, more truthful than any story we'll ever tell each other, and that every good story echoes to see ourselves in that story. And that Advent, that the, that the, um, the formative rituals of childhood and of families are an invitation to meaning. They're an invitation to understanding, to wisdom, and to desire, to love, to passion, to what you, to seeing yourself for who you really are, to valuing yourself, but not centering on yourself. Or, you know, I just feel like it's almost impossible to overstate the importance of these formative rituals, which is another reason why, you know, your um, emphasis on the morning time and is so powerful and is such a powerful influence because I mean that's just that's you know we've had evening rituals a lot of times in life and they, they they've centered around you know studying the Bible or which is awesome I, you know I love the Bible I think it's amazing and fantastic and not that it needs my endorsement but you know just that like our Advent time is just is fantastic but this morning time is just that's been such a, a point of focus for our whole family and of the ritual. It's unbelievable what they accomplish. I, sometimes I'm working and I'll come inside. I've been working from home for a little while. I have this little office outside that I'll come in to get a drink or something. And I'll hear them like reciting Shakespeare and uh, listening to mom read. You know, we've got little kids now, too. So we've got sort of every age. So like we're going through the Narnia books again. And so I hear her listening. I hear her reading from Prince Caspian and, and they'll be reciting something in Latin or whatever. And it's it, is, it has been an, a tremendous, tremendous key for us. So I, I don't know. I don't want to say I just think it's, that you're exactly right, that it's unbelievably powerful and that we, like, that we've, as Chesterton talked about us sort of growing tired of repetition, that, that and he talked about us, that we've sinned and grown old and that we, that our father is younger than us. And that in a real sense, not anything against maturity, which the, the, the Christian faith would certainly be a lot about of becoming maturity. But I think that maturity is being connected with the re-enchantment of the world and who we are. And so I, I feel like it's profoundly powerful. Yeah, I like that. I like that. I'm writing that down, that whole re-enchantment with the world thing. Um, well, make sure you give me credit. I, I will. Got to make a buck somehow. It, well, yeah, I have to give you credit for re-enchantment of the world. And then, hey, Sam Smith endorses the Bible right here. <laughs> On my show. <laughs> A five-star review. 
I love it. Well, let's talk a little bit about some things that can sometimes be tough with stories. We want to give our kids clear examples of virtue, and we've talked about that a lot today. But a lot of times, some of the most interesting stories, some of the best stories feature characters who struggle to do what's right. Why is it important to read about that struggle? So, yeah, so that we often think about stories as vehicles or as maybe uh, opportunities to inspire our kids to something bigger or better, to something we see St. George and we say, wouldn't you want to be like that? And I think that is a completely awesome way to talk to kids and to think about stories. I think that's wonderful. And that's happened for me a thousand times. But maybe almost more powerful in some ways is seeing some of these negative characters. And I think that's what you're getting at. And I, I want to have that even in my even in my heroes, that there are moments, uh, particularly with with one of my characters, Pickett, in the in the first book, where I've yeah, heard yeah. so I've heard so often from parents and who say, "Oh my goodness, that was really appropriate for us. That was really powerful for us to see uh, what's what's what was happening with him and and to for, for the description of him holding on to sort of bitterness and resentment, even when he knew in his mind that it was wrong." And I think that's a powerful thing, is because it's not always information that changes me as a morally, you know, or inspires me morally. It's because I feel like I know the right thing, mm. but I don't always do it. And I need more than, than information. And that, that goes back to our conversation about formation, about spiritual formation, about rituals and the powers of things we do repeatedly. But I've got to, I've got to see it. I've got to see it and I've got to inhabit it. I've got to walk a mile in the man's shoes who's walking the wrong way in order to sort of appreciate, oh my goodness, I don't want to be that. Oh my goodness, I am that. That's that's happened to me a lot. Is oh, oh, this guy's a bad guy, or he's a good guy making a bad decision, and that's just like me. That is just I see myself. Oh, it's a mirror, and it's a mirror that reflects reality, and then therefore, yeah, inspires change for me. So I think it's deeply important and powerful to have those experiences as a kid and as a reader. You know, I think a lot of times we have this fear as a parent that we're going to put a character like that out in front of our kids, and they're going to say, oh, look, you know, we can do wrong too. But I think so many times instead, they look at that character and they see they can relate to having those feelings because they're fallen and they've had those Mm. feelings before themselves. And then they, they see how it all turns out for that character and can make that connection between this was not the right feeling to have. This was, you know, they're not trying to emulate, but they're certainly identifying and having empathy with that character and understanding, hey, this person's like me. And now I can see that it's, you know, because Pickett was never satisfied with his feelings there. He was, he was grumpy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, he, he was never, he never felt good about what, you know, these feelings that he was having and what was going on. And I think the kids could, feel that too, could feel that frustration. Mm, I hope so. I think, I think that's exactly right. And, and I, you know, I, this kind of goes back to sort of having um, storytellers and, and books, adventures that we, can, that we can trust that come from a good place. Because I don't know about you, but I feel like a lot of the like, TV and movies that I grew up receiving, uh, you know, that the, that, the, that the storytellers were often positioning people who were deeply rebellious and very selfish as central characters and as, a, as like a, a really good path to follow. And I feel like that's such a, and I, again, I, the opposite of that is not reducing everybody to these moral sort of equations where the good person, this happens, you know, that's not really, that doesn't really account for reality either, in the, especially in the short term. I mean, that's what the, one reason why the Bible is so fascinating, because you have just unbelievable breadth of stories, of stories of people doing, you know, it's not always like, well, Johnny told the truth, and then he got an apple at the end. It's not, it doesn't happen like that often. It's very tragic and very broad and very comprehensive as far as like the storytelling. In it, which, uh, in, but I just, so I just feel like the cliche of the rebel against everybody who's selfish and who is miss you know doesn't treat girls well and he's really cool and he's like a cold kind of a character that that maybe was typified in the 80s and 90s I don't know that I feel like I saw a lot like that's unhealthy too that's that's not a it's not a it's not health so I feel like I just want to emphasize the importance of sort of the the character of the storyteller there's a lot of power in how you represent things you can I mean now we it's like we can't even have a hero Every hero, I mean, if you watch the Lord of the Rings movies, 
you know, Aragorn, who is a little bit complicated. I mean, he is a strider and there's there's a dark. But the, the movie just basically turned him into like he just never stopped being strider. He was always this sort of um, vagabond antihero. He was unsure. And it was so different, such a contrast from, from Tolkien's vision. And the same thing happened with Faramir and other characters who just it was almost like Peter Jackson could understand the darkness, could understand evil. He had kind of a background in horror, but it was almost like the, the, the good characters were too good to be true. And so he was almost afraid to represent them for a modern audience because there was too much virtue there and it didn't know how to represent that very well. And uh, so I feel like that's just uh, so it's important to me to be able to, to be able to trust storytellers to frame those sorts of things and not um, lionize or glorify sort of like rebe- like basic rebellion as being this like un- you know untouchable virtue, which it feels like a lot of storytelling does. Well, let's talk about fantasy versus reality for a few minutes, and and fantasy stories versus realistic fiction, actually. We know that we've talked a lot about Narnia and Tolkien and things like that today as sparking the imagination. But what about stories like realistic stories like Charles Dickens or Ellen Montgomery? Can they wake us up to our moral imaginations just as much as Lewis and Tolkien? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's been very many stories that have spoken to me on a like a moral, um, inspirational, aspirational sort of level as Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, one of my favorite books of all time. I love it so, so much in so many ways. But yeah, I think I think that the I think what we could probably acknowledge is that sometimes stories that have elements of fantasy help us in that they help us see, you know, again, going back to Chesterton, who just can't stop talking about because he just has so much insight about this stuff is particularly his chapter in orthodoxy called I think it's chapter four, the ethics of Elfland is so profound. But one of the things he says is that, is that poets make the, make the apples silver or gold because we have forgotten that they're green. And they make the, the rivers run with wine because we are not astonished that they run with water. So I think fantasy has a, has a, has a, has a similar role as poetry in, in, it, in that it can often get past our intellects to show us something that's fantastic. And we respond to it in a way that we should be responding to the world as it is, the world as God made it, which mm-hmm. is a fantasy world, which is incredible. And I say it over and over again, but we, we eat food from the ground. You know, we frost our cakes, which are not necessary for survival, with sugar that comes from cane, it comes from grass. And uh, we we eat food from the ground, you know, we get babies in this amazing way. I mean, that's, and if you came to a world where that was happening and, and you didn't have, you didn't know that, or that wasn't your experience, you'd be like, oh my goodness, what? What is happening here? How does, how do people, uh, you know, it's just an incredible, how do we survive? How do we thrive? How do we flourish? Will we do it in this, in this fantastic, unbelievably, magically wonderful way? And so I think fantasy has a way of letting us get outside of it. But that being said, it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. It's not limited to that. We can have eyes to see. And uh, I think that there, there, there's a unique opportunity with fantasy to get around our, you know, I don't want to misuse Tolkien's, I mean, uh, Lewis's quote about the watchful dragons, but it's kind of applicable with our intellects kind of get in the way sometimes. And when we can sort of do a short circuit or an end run around our intellects, and get to our imaginations, I think we can become enchanted. We can, we can be a more awakened with enchantment in a way that, that some more realistic stories don't do. But that said, how many women have you met who have been unbelievably enchanted by Anne of Green Gables? Mm-hmm. I mean, I know about 8,000 of them myself and myself as well. It's fantastic. I love it. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. And the same thing can happen with Dickens in different ways. And and uh, the Count of Monte Cristo is one of my favorites. It's just an absolute favorite book, and um, and it's not a fantasy, but it's fantastic. So I don't know. I don't know the answer. I just feel like it's all valuable, and the, the fantasy has some unique advantages in that. I think you're right, though. They're not fantasy, but they are fantastic. There's just something about a well-told story mm. that does awaken your wonder with the world, even though everything in there is grounded in reality but Mm. the experience of the story you know being taken along by a master craftsman storyteller into that world and 
you know, riding that wave of conflict and coming to that resolution and feeling satisfied, you know, that Mm -hmm. contract between the author and the reader being well met, Mm -hmm. it can really turn us on to that wonder. And I love what you said about that. We live in such a wonderful world and, and we take so much of it for granted. I'm paraphrasing you now to be reawakened to that wonder. And that's what stories do for us. So, yeah. Mm. Tell me what you're up to. What's next for the Rabbits with Swords? Well, I am glad you asked. It feels like there's a lot going on lately. We've, um, we recently published a new short book called The, the Last Archer, a Green Ember Story, which you mentioned earlier. And uh, that's been really wonderful. It's set sort of at the same time as the, the first book, The Green Ember. And it follows sort of a side character. Uh, I think it's I really enjoyed it a lot, but we are getting ready to, I think when this um, podcast goes out, you know, we'll be in the middle of a Kickstarter for Ember Rising, the Green Ember book three. So the Green Ember, uh, it was the first book and then there was the Green Ember book two, Ember Falls, and then this will be the Green Ember book three, Ember Rising. We ran out of cool um, ideas for titles, so we just just did the most easy thing possible. Uh, Okay. But um, that, so I'm, I'm really excited about that. I can't wait because we, we kind of, I feel like, I don't know how much I can talk about this, but uh, I, we, oh, you, you know, can we, tell us everything. It's fine. I can we tell you. Tell. Okay. Yeah. But we have, uh, so the first book was the green ember. And I think some people did feel like it left on a cliffhanger, but I, I sort of didn't, didn't agree with that too much. I thought that it was um, as a character story, it had a, had a good, a good arc and a, and a good ending, but. Uh, and as an event story, the, the main event sort of happened. There was a, there was a climax, but then there was a little bit of a rising action at the end. And and uh, I thought it was more of like about possibility, kind of like um, Darth Vader, you know, getting away at the end of Star Wars, the first the first Star Wars movie. You kind of like, okay, there's more to this story. I feel like uh, with the second book, with Ember Falls, I um, I sort of cashed in on a lot of the capital that I feel like I had from people being very very supportive. And I told a difficult story, I think, in a lot of ways, you know, and I think it did leave people a little more hanging and, and, it, and it did too. It was, I wanted it to be somewhat satisfying, but it left you in a challenging place, somewhat like the Empire Strikes Back ends with, with Han and, and Frozen and Carbonite. And I feel like just there's a, a lot of middle stories are like that. And, and book three is not the end. It is a middle story as well, this Ember Rising. But I feel like I'm excited about the opportunities that We've had we've explored a lot with the characters, and so that people know the characters a lot better now. So that I think we can get to more of the action, let the story unfold. And I, I kind of, I don't know. I really love this this new one. It's longer, quite a bit longer, and I'm very, very excited to share it. Uh, it's it's a uh, it's another middle one, but it's the, the action is moving, and I think a lot of reveals happen, and a lot happens for our characters and. So I'm very excited about it. I hope people will, will be interested in, in either backing the Kickstarter or buying it when it comes out. So I was going to ask you, how can we take part in this? The first way we could take part would be to back the Kickstarter. And in doing that, we would have different goodies that we might have access to at different Kickstarter levels. The Kickstarter is really, it's really about a story. You know, you can, we, we can publish the book. We, we, we did that with The Last Archer and that was, that was good. But the Kickstarter sort of framing allows us to sort of invite people, invite our allies and our friends to come along and, and be a part of the project. So we set a goal and we get to do it all together. And it, it, it's, it's where a couple of times, we've done it twice and, and both times people have really showed up for us with a lot of enthusiasm. And yeah, it's, I think it's a cool opportunity to get, you'll, you'll be the first people to get the book, for instance. And there's a lot of unique things. Like people love the, the um, Ephal Potter mugs that we do. And we're going to, we, we have some special ones. Hopefully they're still there when this, when this podcast uh, comes out. But we, you know, there's just several little, little, um, you know, we may have a new shirt, hopefully. And so I think there are some, there will be some cool goodies. Yeah. That, that, that would be extra. And I think most important for us is that that we um, it's kind of a tangible way for we, we get a lot of support and a lot of people who write and say, oh, this was great for us and great for our family and help my reluctant reader. Or, you know, uh, my kid was scared after this event and walking through these characters was really valuable for us as a family. So we hear, we hear a lot of supportive things. And it's just kind of a way for people to, to just sort of very publicly <laughs> help us come alongside and say, hey, this um, author that, that we um Appreciate is 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 uh, sharing his new book and and uh, we want to invite you to into the series and and that's kind of a cool thing too is it's not just about this this new book it's not just a Kickstarter because I think the people who want the new book will find the new book but it's about sort of it's an opportunity to share the series with the world with more trying to connect with more readers so 
that's what we, that's the way we kind of look at it. And it's been wonderful for us. We've had amazing allies and amazing friends and really, really grateful, grateful for you, Pam, for inviting me on here and, and uh, letting us have a really cool conversation. And, and thanks for letting me tell people about the, about the Kickstarter. Well, we are going to put a link to the Kickstarter in the show notes for this episode of the podcast. So you'll be able to find that there and can go over and check everything out. And so we're excited about this. And thank you so very much for coming on and chatting with me today about story and what it's meant to your family and what it can mean in a morning time for all these other families too. So I appreciate it. Thank you, Pam. It was a a real honor for me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. And there you have it. Now, if you would like links to the books or resources we chatted about on today's show, you can find them on the show notes for this episode of the podcast. Those are at pambarnhill.com forward slash YMB45. Also on the show notes, we have a direct link to that Green Ember Kickstarter campaign that we chatted about as well. So go over and check out the wonderful goodies they have over there and share that with your friends. Finally, if you would like to meet S.D. Smith in person this year, you can do that at the great homeschool conventions. S.D. and I are both going to be speaking at all five of the great homeschool conventions throughout the country. Both of us would love to meet you there. Find out more information about how you can do that. Have S.D. sign your books, your Green Ember books, or come up and just chat with me for a while in the vendor hall. And all the information you need for that one is at greathomeschoolconventions.com. So we'd love to have you join us there. We'll be back again in a couple of weeks with another great morning time interview. Until then, keep seeking truth, goodness, and beauty in your homeschool day. 